Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Well, hello. How are you? Are you feeling autumnal? I love an autumnal colour. Do you like foliage? I love foliage. I love a, a rusty orange. I love a nutty brown. I love a mossy green. I think these are my colours, but I, d- I don't see you as autumnal. Have you ever had your colours done? No. When you, let me ask you a question. When you were leader, yes. like we have this image in our head as, <laughs> as the public that everything is, is very curated and there's focus groups telling you what type of tie you should be wearing. Yeah. How, re- how real is all that stuff? Well, obviously the bacon sandwich was very heavily curated. <laughs> but most things weren't. I think you look good. In, you look good in a blue. Also, you once, when we went to Iceland, you were wearing like a pistachio green coloured jumper and you yes. look dreamy in it. And I've, I've never seen it since. It's got a hole under the arm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> when our listeners hear this, I will be at the Labour Party conference, which I've worked out. It's not my 30th Labour Party conference, but it is 30 years since I went to my first Labour Party conference in 1993. Wow. I'm surprised it was that late. I'm surprised you weren't <laughs> one of these who was there at the age of seven. I keep my the speech I made as a seven-year-old under my hat. Would you be begging your parents, please, when am I going to be old enough to go to the Labour Party conference? <laughs> when am I going to be old enough to go to the Labour Party conference? What are your memories of uh, going for the first time? I just started working for Harriet Harman and it was all very overwhelming. They all kind of merge into one. There's something about these conferences where a day is like a week. Mm. Also, they used to go from Mondays to Fridays. They've now mercifully shortened them. They always used to be by the seaside. I mean, every, they've ch- these things have changed quite a lot, haven't they? So where is it this year? Liverpool. Absolutely frank. I look forward to Labour Party Conference now because I'm not the leader. I mean, the leader's speech is like a sort of, it starts off as a sort of fluffy white cloud in July and ends up as a sort of dark, menacing <laughs> cloud in September. And I, I think all leaders have found it, you know, I think Neil Kinnock used to stay up all night and write his speech, rewriting it the night before. I used to start the start it in sort of July. This friend of mine always used to say it's like a chance to talk to the country about what you believe, and it's a very rare opportunity. For the leader of the opposition, it's rare because you get a lot of attention. It was always quite a tricky process. I mean, all leaders used to find it. I remember Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. I mean, it was just always just an absolute, it's just a sweat. And I know it sounds strange about one speech, but it's just quite a process. It's definitely a, a thing. But also, I think there's something about these things which, let's be honest, it looks like it's slightly from another planet. I mean, I know that politics generally looks like it's from another planet. You know what I mean? It's like 
Yes, I do. Yeah, Everybody yeah. sort of gathers in one place. And when you see, just one thing I always enjoy is the cutaways to the big dogs of politics in the audience. Are, are there negotiations going on in the months leading up to it? Oh, we'd love this person to be there. Uh, we want to get you in the front row. We want to make sure the cameras see you. I, I'm trying to remember when I was leader. Yeah, I think you try and think who's going to be in the front row and all of that. It's just a sort of roundabout way of saying I never invited you. Yes, yeah. Um, Without any question, you'd have been the first name on the guest list. So there you go. Anyway, I will be, as listeners are listening to this, I shall be in Liverpool. Well, shall we tell them what we're talking about? Yes. We're having having an interesting conversation. Very interesting. So this week, we are talking to a couple of gender equality activists. Now, Gina Martin is a name you may remember. Uh, She was on the podcast a couple of years ago at this point, and she successfully campaigned to bring in a new law in 2019 to make upskirting illegal. But she she's done so much more since then. And we're going to be talking to her about her new book, which is called No Offence But, How to Have Difficult Conversations for Meaningful Change. And uh, Gina has collected a lot of interesting voices together in this book. Uh, and one of them is Ben Hurst, another name you might recognise, because he, he talked to us a while ago about um, masculinity. He's an activist and facilitator at the organisation Beyond Equality. He works with young men and boys to rethink masculinity, think about what being a man means today. And uh, it's, it's a great conversation about how to make change happen, how activism evolves over time, and uh, and ultimately how we make progress and change attitudes on gender equality. And then we've got an absolutely brilliant, heartwarming conversation with Susie Dent, who is the author of a new book called Roots of Happiness, 100 Words for Joy and Hope. You may know the name. She uh, recently celebrated 30 years as a co-presenter and the resident word expert on Channel 4's Countdown. And honestly, you'll want to really listen to this conversation because there are some just fantastic words that you will want to get into the dictionary. My personal favourite, gongoosler. Do you have a favourite word? Jeff. (laughs) I wish I'd added the caveat, we can't have proper nouns. It's like Scrabble. What's your favourite word? I don't know. My favourite word is ticklish. I just It makes me so happy that it exists, that there's a word that we have for whether somebody's susceptible to being tickled or not. It's a good word. Um, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is I want to report... I, I don't know whether I reported to you that my our Wordle streak on the New York Times app was broken by technology. Oh. We were at 128 or something, and then it got broken by just some glitch in the system. And we then emailed the people who run the Wordle, and they said that we can't mend broken streaks. Sorry. My children were pretty distraught. Anyway, we're now clambering back up into the 40s. So we all felt pretty demoralised, if I'm honest. But you're building again from scratch. This is the reason to be cheerful. Well, that is it. Have you been victims of a cyber attack? I don't know. It was some kind of computer. It was some kind of glitch. I think this is your political enemies. Do you think? Yeah, we need to see Grant Shep's phone. Right, OK, that's a good point. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is, do you remember we were talking about CFAX and the pleasures of teletext oh, recently? Yeah, definitely. I, could, I couldn't forget it. Thank you to Les Goodman, who's 65, who got in touch not only to let me know that there are long videos of when the TV used to show pages from CFAX on YouTube, complete with the soundtrack that we used to enjoy back in the day. Was there a soundtrack to CFAX? 
Yeah, they used to have what's called library music. So it's music that TV and radio stations don't have to pay wow. full royalties on. Wow. So it was like light jazz, wow. but some, sometimes it gets a bit lively, as it wow. turned out when I was watching on YouTube the other day. But Les, also let me know about NMSC facts. Now, if you search for this, you will find a CFAX emulator and it will recreate for you the experience of using CFAX. I'm quite excited about this. So if you open up that yeah. page, you'll get the menu screen of CFAX and also uh, a little virtual remote control so you can type in the page number. It really is. It's really true. Yeah. And does it get you the news? Yes, it does. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's the, is it, and is it the up to date? Yes, news? it is. Oh wow! And it's CFAX. Also, what's really satisfying is it doesn't go there immediately, <laughs> just like the real CFAX. Exactly. Well, look, that is quite a thing. You know that you're often trying to do a digital detox and not looking at Twitter. Maybe this could be your answer, Ed. You could just look at CFAX. NMS CFAX. You're on. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are going live to Melbourne, Australia, where we're joined by Gina Martin and Ben Hurst. Hello, both. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hello. Thanks for talking to us. Going live. Yeah. At, uh, at what, what time is it there? It's 10 in the morning here, so it's something horrible there, right? Half eight in the evening. Oh, that's good. That's quite civilised. Not bad. I, I was feeling guilty about keeping you up. No, guys. It's brutal. I, I'm Gina lives here. I am travelling, and this this jet lag has got me in a chokehold. I'm not even joking. This is rough. It's oh, really it's horrendous. Bad. It wow. is horrendous. How long have you been there, Ben? Uh, four, five days. I think I don't even. I don't know. I don't know. That's the problem. I have no idea what day <laughs> it is, what time it is. It's just. It's just a struggle. But I'm happy to be here. You're going to be adjusted by the time you um, are ready to leave. Yeah. Get on the plane back home, I'm sure. And and you're both here to talk about this uh, book. It's called No Offence, But How to Have Difficult Conversations for Meaningful Change. Gina, you're the curator and writer. Tell us a little bit more about the book. Yeah, well, the book came about because in my work as a gender equality activist and writer and speaker, I was doing lots and lots of events with lots of different types of people over the past sort of six years, whether that was teachers or victims and survivors of sexual violence or young people or politicians or what have you. And a lot of the events would end, especially when they were public events, with young women or women coming up to me and saying, how do you respond to blank? So you're not all men. You're, you can't say anything these days. Or you're, if you don't want attention, just cover up. How do you respond to it without losing it? Because I know it's not right. I know it's regressive and I know it, it, it creates a culture, but I don't really have the language and there's so much emotion and so much I want to say when I hear it. And it really just got to the point where I was like, maybe I could create a project where we use the most common phrases we hear in our society around kind of big systems or big social justice issues and use those as avenues into discussion and unpicking them in an accessible way and then offering ways to frame conversation around them constructively. And that was about two and a half years ago. That was like, you know, early days of the pandemic when I kind of came up with the idea and then it finally saw the light of day this year. There's an Avengers Assemble component to it and, and Ben is one of the Avengers you've yeah. assembled. Yes, <laughs> great way of putting it correct yeah yeah Ben me and Ben have been friends for a while we met through work and all the writers and advocates and activists who are in the book are people that I have personally learned from on issues that I don't like experiences I don't actually live or issues I didn't know a lot about and it definitely felt like when I was planning it I wanted to cover 
some of the main phrases we hear around like misogyny and sexism. So the ones I've just mentioned, but then at the same time, there was all these other behaviors and attitudes in our society and dominant culture that I've been trying to unpick personally, like how I, where I sit in those and how I feel about those. And I thought, okay, well, if this book's about growth and people having conversations to further growth, then I probably need to really look at the people that I've learned from and try and include those people in the book as well. Because you can't really talk about sexism and misogyny without talking about all these other big power systems that feed into it intimately. And Gina, before we come to Ben, uh, we had you on the podcast back in 2019 talking about your campaign to make upskirting illegal, um, which was a successful campaign. Mm. It's very sort of striking kind of reading the book just and and sort of seeing reading about you talking about your sort of evolution of your thinking just, just talk to us a little bit if you would about what's changed about your thinking yeah of course I think in 2017 when I started that campaign I would have been like what 26 now 32 and I was working in an office in advertising and that campaign was something I founded and ran because of a personal experience of being upskirted and not having the safety nets that I thought were there to catch me. And the kind of biggest I could think at that point in my life with the knowledge I had and the experiences I had was like changing the law is the biggest thing you can possibly do that will have the absolute most impact. And it felt like changing the world at that time. Like it really did because it was like, well, I can't do that. I have no political or legal experience. There's no way I'm going to be able to do that. That's ridiculous thinking. And then obviously through the help of the people and, you know, a legal team and a long, hard fight and campaign, we changed that. And what ultimately happened is I saw reports go up. So before the campaign, I was being told continuously by like police commissioners and politicians that like upskilling didn't happen and it didn't exist because it wasn't in the numbers. It wasn't in the data. And then when we changed the law, there was almost one report a week to police. So we're like, okay, so now we can see that this is a real problem in culture, but I reckoned with this idea that criminalization, if it's meant to be about harm prevention, how is it that if it takes place after the harm has also taken place, but not only that, that perpetrators of these assaults and this harm aren't less likely statistically to not harm themselves or the people when they come out the other end of the prison system. And really spent a lot of time reading about that and kind of landed on the idea that I didn't really want to spend my time fighting for law reform, which personally, I shouldn't have had to fight for, I don't think. Like people are always like, oh my God, so well done. That's so cool and amazing. And I'm like, I shouldn't have had to give up two years of my life and all my money to fight on something and fight politicians on changing something. Yeah. But also like, I'd much rather put my work and time into prevention. And I think I'm better at that in terms of like unpicking how we get to this point, how the this harm is caused in the first place. But also it was an incredibly personal and traumatic experience, not only to be upskirted, but to go through that campaigning for two years just really broke me in a way I didn't realise. So now I'm in a much more preventative mindset and my politics is there too. Also, it just occurs to me that the, the, the process of the campaigning also involved having to revisit the trauma constantly of, of what you'd you'd been through which oh, yeah. you know isn't, isn't the same as processing the the trauma or making peace with it that must have taken its toll on you yes it really did and I didn't realize at the time there's also a narrative of the perfect victim right that I think women are fed which is like the strong woman who is like what happened to me was wrong and I'm going to create something good out of this and I'm going to be this 
kind of bastion of strength throughout this thing. And I played that part for a long time and I was comfortable to share the story because I felt like just if people heard it, they'd understand and it would change their hearts and minds. And that's not always the case. But there was something also a bit dark that happened through that experience, which was that I'd be on the news and the person interviewing me would be gently goading me into a really emotional space. So like they want you to cry because that's really that's an amazing piece of TV or that's a great put down for social. They want to see the emotion. So they'd be saying things like, what does it feel like to think they still have those photos on the phone? and You don't know where they're going to go. And I get really emotional in those moments. And then I'd go to Parliament and be having meetings with my lawyer and keenly aware that any emotion that I displayed would make me less believable or would delegitimize me in those spaces. So there became this real tussle. And in with all of that was a lot of online abuse, which became a real safety concern. And then at the same time, a great amount of adoration and praise as this sort of like untouchable person who's just like taking on Parliament. And all of it was very weird and dehumanizing. And what I, what eventually happens is the story no longer really becomes your own. It becomes you're playing a part. Story is really important in that I think people are empathetic, right? I mean, your your experience would surely suggest, Gina, that there's a chunk of people who aren't. But we've talked a lot on the podcast about the importance of conversation. And when people hear stories at the right temperature of conversation, they, they are able to understand things from other people's perspective. And, and I know, Ben, you've described yourself in your essay in the book, in fact, as a, as a bit of a conversationalist. Can you talk to us about like, your feelings on, on the importance of, of story and conversation in, in the work that you do? I think that bit of telling stories always goes hand in hand with being able to listen. Um, and actually, I think the bulk of like, the work that we're doing at Beyond Equality around masculinities is about drawing stories out of other people and about holding space to be able to grapple with those stories and find the meaning in them. And I think, you know, you say people are empathetic and I agree that people definitely have capacity for empathy, but empathy is also a skill, right? It's something that we learn. It's like a, a muscle that we exercise. It's something that we develop. In the work that we do with boys, we find that they're still developing that muscle. And so trying to appeal to that empathy isn't always the most efficient pathway into getting somebody to understand something. Um, actually, what we often find is that giving them the space to explore their own narratives, to find their own stories and to explore and elaborate on those often creates a really good pathway into them being able to understand something or reframe something and see it in a different light. I'm very struck in the book, Gina, that you um, talk about your experiences as a child and you talk about, I think, one particular experience as an 11-year-old where you're being bullied by a boy in your school and the teacher says, oh, boys, you know, what do you expect Yeah, type of thing? The phrase boys will be boys. Just talk to us about that phrase and just about the way to think about that and the responses to that and so on. Of course. I think Ben's TED Talk, which you should all watch, does, and he's got great experience of explaining this exact phrase and the impact of this phrase in culture and on the boys. But I think from my perspective as a young girl, what that taught me in not so many words very, very early on was that behaviour that made me feel unsafe was normal behaviour. I was to be arranged around that 
because that was expected, maybe because we don't want to face where that behaviour is coming from, but also because it feeds into our ideas of what boys are and what men are and what they're going to be. And I think it made me fearful as a young girl in school, especially because I was bullied by two boys, but I was more fearful of boys' behaviour than I ever was of girls' behaviour. And it wasn't just because we existed in the same gender, it was because I was made to feel unsafe many times and it was passed off as normal. So then the subtext of that is you will feel unsafe in the world as a girl or a woman around men, and that's that's okay. And you also talk, I think, in the book about having an argument with a friend of yours who tries to defend completely unacceptable behaviour. Yeah, very early on. I was in my early 20s, maybe, yeah, when we had that conversation, we were in a pub, and he used to go up to women and smack them on the bum as a way to say hello, essentially. And I'm still friends with him now. He's a, he's a, you know, he's a good person, but his behaviour... I honestly believe if someone did that to a woman in his life, he would find that unacceptable, but he finds it acceptable because he is a context of him, his own. He doesn't think he's an unsafe person and therefore it's acceptable. And we were sitting at the pub and he was telling me about that. This was way before I had really formulated my own thoughts or feelings about it because it was also so normalized to me. It had been done to me so many times. I had this feeling of like, I've got it. I know what to say. I'll turn it. I'll just directly switch it. So I said, <laughs> Obviously, it didn't work. So I said to him, like, how would you feel if a woman came up to you and smacked you on the bum? And he'd be like, I, I think it was hilarious. I was like, well, of course, because you don't exist in a world in which women are your biggest killer. And also you don't deal with this hundreds of times a week. And you don't have this consistent feeling of unsafety that you've been socialised into around boys' behaviour and men's behaviour. Power structures Gina's talking about have been around for you know, arguably millennia. And, you know, we, we have this idea that things get better, but actually it feels like there's an acceleration of this. So you've, you've got this phrase, toxic masculinity, which it seems baffling that this has got worse and not better in the light of women's voices and women's stories being heard more in recent years. I think actually probably a part of the reality that we're dealing with now is that things are staying as they have always been. I don't know if it's that they've gotten worse or if it's that there's more light being shone on on what's happening. And I think it's really easy in this kind of conversation to turn that into pointing fingers at people. But the reality is that this is not a, an issue of individual perpetrators of acts of violence, right? This is a, a cultural and a systemic issue that we have had and continue to have it takes generations to start to change those mindsets. So the progress can feel slow, but I think we've really got to celebrate the fact that that progress is happening whilst holding the reality of the harm that's being caused while that change happens at quite a slow pace at the same time. Gina talked about the experience she had with her friend and and the way she tried to sort of turn the argument around on him and it didn't quite, it didn't work. Will you talk a little bit about how you go about changing people's attitudes what's the work you do that sort of changes people's thoughts about these issues because you both said it's deeply ingrained in the culture mm. Ed, i can't tell you that that's magic <laughs> but, but just to make it into a real example there's a young man who has become interested in that kind of andrew tate jordan peterson no who's that i don't know any of those men what do you mean what? <laughs> <laughs> in, in in that world how do i go about talking to him in a way that that is going to be effective jeff you have to come to our four times a year workshops on exactly this issue <laughs> okay. yeah, 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 yeah you could get you could get some answers there but i think to give a really 
brief but also granular answer, which is difficult. I think that the key to these conversations is curiosity. And I think that the natural response when you see someone doing something that you don't want them to do is to correct them, right? It's to tell them off to... Policing. Yeah, police it, tell them what they're doing is wrong. Um, But actually, I don't think we ask the question why enough. And I think in our experience, when we do ask that question, what we find is that the the people that these boys are being drawn to are speaking to a, a series of needs that they have. A need to be seen, a need to be heard, a need to see yourself as successful, as powerful, as the the victor in a scenario where you're often cast as the villain. A need for community, a need for physical and mental well-being. And it's all packaged in this kind of beautiful box with a bow that says, well, if you do all of these things, you'll also be able to have money and sleep with women and do all of these things. And so I would say telling boys that doesn't solve the problem, but actually finding out what it is that they want and helping them to understand, number one, the impact of having those things, but also that there are healthy alternatives and ways that they can get those things without causing harm to people in their communities, without causing harm to people that they love, and ultimately without causing harm to themselves is the big solution. I think often we start this conversation in the wrong place where we go in with, you shouldn't be doing this because it's horrible and it's hurting other people. It's so interesting you're saying this. Funnily enough, I was going to ask you about something I heard, which is there's an author called Tara Westover who wrote a book called Educated. And it was about she basically didn't go to school fundamentally, but she lived in a very, very conservative part of America. And and she then ended up going to a very conservative college. And then she ended up, I think, at Cambridge University. On the first day, she met somebody and she basically had very, very homophobic views. And she basically started espousing these homophobic views. And he didn't say to her, you're so wrong, that's terrible, etc. He said, oh, why do you think that? He said, I've really mm-hmm. never met anybody who has those thoughts before. Tell me why you think that. And she said, by the next day, she sent him an email saying, I, I now think you were right and my views were, were wrong. Right, right, right. Now, I'm not saying it's as easy as that, but but that's quite interesting, isn't it? Mm. You're saying we should be quite non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And I, and I think there's a reality also that we have to acknowledge the harm that's being caused, right? Yeah. But there is, there is a lot of magic in the curiosity and the asking questions and the hearing, actually listening to the responses that people are giving. And I always say, especially when we're working with young people, if we give them all the tools and we give them all the space to like figure stuff out, they generally arrive at really good and healthy conclusions for themselves, right? They, boys, are so used to being told what they're supposed to think and who they're supposed to be. And actually, most people want to be good people in the world. And so when we help them to understand like what the impact of that is, they will arrive at good conclusions. But I think the other side of the other part of this is also that these attitudes and these views and these behaviours also harm us as men and as boys. And actually, they don't lead to to the best outcomes for us either, right? When we look at mental health statistics in the UK for men, we know suicide is the leading killer for men under the age of 55. And it's linked often to men's inability to access emotions or to express those emotions in healthy ways. Can I just go back to Gina's friend? What does that mean about the conversation with Gina's friend who slaps women on the bum as a greeting? Mm, I think it means you've got to ask a lot of questions, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's what I should have done. It's been like... Why? So why do you do that? What do you think that? 
how do you think that makes them feel? How does it make you feel when you do it? Right. Where did you get that from? Where, you know, like the curiosity of that conversation probably would have allowed him to, he probably would have got to a point where he would have gone, I don't know where I got that from. And then we could have discussed yeah. that, right? <laughs> but otherwise, yeah. I just escalated with opinion until both of us wanted to exit the conversation and therefore there wasn't a solution. I can imagine some of our listeners thinking, well, that sounds like you're, I mean, in no sense are we saying people should be able to get away with these things. No. No, 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 of course not. I think this is a really important note to make is that being curious about something you disagree with doesn't mean you're co-signing it. Mm-hmm. It's about taking a human view of the fact that we all arrive at decisions from somewhere and that it's about being brave enough to try and see the possibility of growth in someone outside of the systems that they've grown up in and the things that they've been told. So explaining isn't justifying, but I think we're really fearful of being like explaining how we got somewhere. And I think we're really fearful of also giving people the space to explain how they caused harm because we feel like we'll be viewed as co-signing that or justifying that when actually that's usually what it takes to get to a healthier place. I completely agree about it on a human level, but it's a, it's a slow way for change to happen. Yes. And then what can happen with campaigning sometimes, by, by necessity, that there can be an element of shame or shaming to change an attitude because shame leads to a kind of defensiveness and then that creates these dark corners for this toxicity to to develop. Mm-hmm. Isn't there also a thing here which just is sort of, you know, it's quite important that these behaviours are made clear that they're sort of unacceptable, yeah. that they're an assault. Yes, yes, but what I'm saying is the, the ways in which we do that, when that's at scale, when, when that's to a large group of people simultaneously, there's no space for the, for the kind of um, c- conversation and understanding that um, Ben and, and Gina are talking about. You've just explained essentially what I did in my campaign, which is that I activated public anger in that I activated people who might not have been upskirted, but they know what it felt like to have their personal space violated. That All women and many people, most people of marginalised genders know what it feels like to feel unsafe and to be sexualised without their consent. So there was an anger activated there. There was probably also a lot of men who signed the petition who had maybe engaged in something along the line, sexist comments, catcalling, whatever, who felt like they wanted to sign it because they felt like it's the right thing to do. There was probably a lot of people who felt shame from the kind of narratives that came from my campaign. That was at scale. And you're right, there's less nuance. And that's also something that I recognise and probably why I don't campaign as much anymore is because it just isn't at the level that grassroots work like this is in the rooms with people. And though grassroots work in the rooms with people is slower work individually. The collectivism of the amount of those movements happening all at one time of moving pieces and people recognising how that work actually helps and people putting funding into it, that starts to create like a cultural movement. Although it's slower, it's the question of, well, all of this has been slow. It's been 400 years. So I'd much rather work on the slow work that's going to have efficacy and and make a difference in people's lives because a behaviour and attitudes... If it works and if you if you develop your attitude and you change the way you feel and think about these things, 
that is a lasting effect in the decisions you make, your relationships, everything, all the different people you interact with. You don't ever get to see where the wave crashes, but you see the wave begin. I'd much rather work on that than the kind of flattened, nuanced version where people just feel something and then make take an action real quick, but then never think about it again. And I, I suppose, I mean, I'm so, sorry to keep bringing it back to your, your friend, but I suppose it's the difference between a world in which your friend is thinking, well, I suppose we're not allowed to pat women on the bum anymore, but but inside thinking, yeah, but, you know, was it ever that big a problem? Right. right. But him actually understanding. Yeah, and that's the difference between policing behaviour is that people learn not to say it out loud, but the mindset doesn't change versus yes. giving them the space to actually grow means the mindset can actually start to change. Yes, yeah. I mean, I suspect you need both and, don't you? Right, yeah. yeah of course. That's why, that's why I did both, Ed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we do. We need policy yeah. change. We need structural change. We need culture change. I always think shame is such an interesting thing, right? Because it does change behaviour, but it doesn't change attitudes. And as long as the attitude is there, other behaviours will manifest. Mm-hmm. And like you say, Jeff, it's, it's where those shadowy corners start to start to creep up, right? The behaviour change is urgent. We have to change the policies. We have to make things fairer and more equitable. But also that work has to go hand in hand with changing those attitudes. Otherwise, people will just find other ways to do the same things. Shame can be really weaponized and harnessed. So like if we look at young men who have been fed this idea, let's say that to be a man means a very prescriptive, restrictive set of ideas. Anger is acceptable, but vulnerability isn't acceptable. Softer emotions aren't acceptable. It's very easy for them, like misogynist influencers, to come in and harness that shame that these boys feel about not being a man, not getting enough girls, not being successful, not being all these things, to be like, let me grab that shame, let me take you over here and give you this new box that says, if you do all these things and give me money, then you'll be able to achieve what you've always been told you're meant to be. So then we get into a dangerous space where shame allows us a vacuum to be filled by something that's like much more dangerous. Should we end on a note of um, hope? Always. That's a good idea. (laughs) What gives you hope in your work? People's capacity for growth. I think that's part of the reason that I don't work on top level stuff and big transparent visible campaigning stuff anymore I think now to be in rooms with people who opt in to the brave work of being like I want to figure this out like I want to do better gives me a massive amount of hope hope isn't this like abstract kind of nebulous magic thing that exists it's actually something that like we create for each other I meet Ben and he's doing these workshops and like Ben has created hope for me as a woman in the world who's like, this can never change and boys and men will never get this. And then I create a piece of work that a young woman reads and feels like validated and we are creating that for each other all the time. And as an activist and a writer, I get to be in rooms of people who are actually doing work that changes people's minds and hearts, We but we don't exist in a media landscape that ever shows them. And showing those people exist, those platforms exist is so important because then we know it's possible. And that really, that possibility for growth really gives me hope. And what about you, Ben? Say Gina. (laughs) What gives me hope? Gina. (laughs) Gina gives me hope. Yeah! Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, I think Gina does give me hope. I think also, do you know what? To be honest, I always find hope in looking back at my own journey and, and where I've come from to where I am now. I live as 
a, a testament to what can happen, right? Like I know that it's possible because I've experienced it and I've experienced mm. the benefits for myself and for my community, for the people around me, for the guys that we work with. All of that gives me a lot of hope that those conversations have an afterlife and that that afterlife can be really positive and it doesn't necessarily make perfect people, but it does lead to transformative change in, in people's lives. There's always hope that every single action we take can have a positive impact on another person. That's a great note to end on. Uh, Gina Martin and Ben Hurst, thank you so much. The The book is No Offence But, How to Have Difficult Conversations for Meaningful Change. It's a really, really interesting read. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to say that we have TV royalty with us. Susie Dent, a writer and broadcaster, she recently celebrated 30 years as a co-presenter and the resident word expert on Channel 4's Countdown. Susie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I've been called nerd royalty before, but <laughs> I'm n- not TV royalty, so I'm very chuffed with that. Thank you. Well, look, you've got a fantastic new book out called Roots of Happiness, 100 Words for Joy and Hope, which is an absolute delight to read. You're also famous on Twitter for your word of the day. So what is your word of the day for us today? Oh, gosh, I haven't decided yet. <laughs> oh, tell us about your process. How how do you decide? Yes, yeah, so a lot of people think that I... You know, I decide these way in advance and sort of time them with topical events and things. Honestly, they are just the inspiration or lack of it of of a moment. So it quite often is sparked by something in the news, but also quite often it is just the way I'm feeling. It's very self-referential. So there is there's quite a lot in my timeline for words that describe sort of just about hanging together. I remember a word from the Scots Dictionary, which is Hingham Tringham, and it means exactly that, just about getting by, you know, barely presentable. And my feed was suddenly full of pictures of Boris Johnson. Uh, So people pick (laughs) up these words and then they just use them for, you know, for their own purposes, which is the, the lovely thing about it. Well, look, your book is about bringing positive words back into our lives. And there are so many that are brilliant. My personal favourite, I think partly because of the way it sounds, is Gongoozler. <laughs> yes, it's a gorgeous Talk word. to us about the Gongoozler. 
The Gongoozla, okay, so this began as, well, first it was regional dialects. I think it began in the southwest and then was picked up by people who potter about on canals. And it was used for the people who sort of sit idly on uh, on the bank of a river or the bank of a canal and just watch the activity on the water. And so I think it's quite useful for staring vacantly at anything, which is what I tend to do a lot. I mean, it's great because you could sort of say, I'm off to do a bit of gongoozling. Yes. Exactly. How often are these um, words in your head and you think, oh, I should tell people about this one, I should write about this one, versus like sifting? Like, I, I have this image of you like with lots of uh, obscure dictionaries doing, doing a lot of sifting. Is, is that the case or is a lot of it just up there already? Well, I have pretty much spent my life reading the dictionary, Jeff. So a lot of it is there. I do repeat myself a lot because there are so many words in the past that have somehow faded away, inexplicably, it seems to me, and yet they're so useful for modern times. So I will keep on repeating those in the hope that someone somewhere picks them up. But I do also spend a lot of time immersed, particularly in the Oxford English Dictionary, which I don't have all 20 volumes in my office anymore. I just look at it online and it is just a repository of the most beautiful things, including so many of these lost positives, which I was trying to bring back in this book. And and when you were at school, were you, like the rest of us, were you just looking up dirty words or or (laughs) you were looking up these kinds of words? Both. I went to a convent, so there wasn't kind of very much uh, (laughs) naughtiness going on. But I do remember looking up um, just the word fart in my concise Oxford dictionary. And it was hilarious. It was defined as a minor explosion between the legs, which sounded absolutely terrifying. Um, But yeah, that that was the definition then. I just wanted to pick up on what you said, because it's really interesting. One of the things that struck me most about the book is the extent to which words, some great words died out. Yeah. Yes, they really have. And I think it must say something about our outlook. We do love to dwell on the sort of sad and slightly seamy side of life. And there are so many examples, and I put some in the book, of words that began as something incredibly positive. So the one I often mention is Ruth. So Ruth as a name means compassionate and Ruthful means to be full of compassion and to be full of empathy for other people. But we ditch that and we just go with ruthless instead. And there are so many examples of those. Gormless. Gormless. You can be full of gorm. And that means what? Intelligent, basically. Yeah, to be gorm-like is to have an intelligent look about you. That's how it's defined in the dictionary. And gorm is a legacy of the Vikings, actually. And so in their language of Old Norse, it meant to take heed, to take notice of the world around you. And um, obviously, if you're gormless, you don't do any of that. I could go on. We can be ept, we can be wieldy, we can be coos, we can be gruntled, uh, though that was P.G. Woodhouse and a bit of a joke. But, you know, there are so many examples of these and they've just fallen away. So I just think it would be... So lovely to bring them back and actually to try and fulfil the evidence, really, that seems to be out there, that the more we can articulate happy words, the more we can actually feel their joy, because the power of language is that you can actually affect your emotions by saying these words, which is amazing. I think Herkel Durkel deserves to come back. (laughs) Yeah, that's from the Dictionary of Scots. That means to lie in bed long after it's time to get up. And actually... (laughs) Scott's dictionaries are brilliant. There's one that I didn't put in the book because I'm not sure children would have experienced this yet, but um, any adult will have done. And that's to tartle. And to tartle is to hesitate when you're introducing someone because you've totally forgotten their name. Yeah. <laughs> so pithy. Like almost all these words, it's, it's, it's just like they could have been invented for me. 
specifically. Yes, and me. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and here's what I never understand. Like, there were words for the day before yesterday and the day after tomorrow, and we stopped using them. Those, those are such useful words. It feels so long-winded to not have those words. What were they? Yeah, the lost markers of time. We had air yesterday for the day before yesterday. We had over morrow, which is just beautiful for the mm. day after tomorrow. And they're echoed in other languages. So German has these. They have Übermorgen and Vorgestern and things. But uh, but we've just lost them. And similarly, we've kept fortnight, which is short for 14 nights, but we've lost senite, which was seven nights a week. So it's just, it's so, it seems to be so random as to why we latch onto some words and not others. Can I, can I share a little bit about you? Because um, I, I, I've done this kind of work for a long time and I'm a bit jaded and I rarely get starstruck. <laughs> but I, th- I think that I have with you is I remember, I mean, you've been, you've been uh, in the public eye for 30, was it 30 or 31 years? I'm in my 31st year now, yeah. So 1992 was my first. So I felt like I was the only one who knew because I, I remember seeing you early on and, and this was on Countdown and Dictionary Corner and, and you weren't the only person, but I'd get excited if it was a Susie Dent day. Oh, I think I really liked Susie Dent from the Oxford. So, so I felt <laughs> like I always knew, oh, Susie Dent's got something special. And then it felt to me like when social media became a thing and people could follow you on Twitter, I, I felt somewhat upset because, oh, it's not just me, is it? Everybody <laughs> thinks the same thing. Oh, that's really kind of you. But and, and I'm, I'm not being falsely modest here, but I promise you the reason people follow me on Twitter is that they like the words. It's not, you know, it's just these words are there. And as I say, people just pick them up and think, oh, yeah, this is really useful for X, Y and Z. So it's I am just a conduit from that point of view. But I resisted it for a long time, Twitter. Because it must, it must be strange because you're working at the Oxford University Press, right? And then was it like just somebody, okay, this week it's your turn. Like It was just part of the job. You had to go off and sit in Dictionary Corner. I mean, it was your first, you were saying just before we turned on the microphone, it was your first job. Yes, it was my very first job. How did it happen? So, yes, it was my first job. I'd come back from the States where I'd been studying and went to OUP, loved it, was working on French and German dictionaries. And then my boss, Simon, said, we have this arrangement with a programme on Channel 4 and they need people to sit in the corner and be the word referee. And I said no quite a few times because it just wasn't something I wanted to do. You know, I was just quite happy bubbling along lost in books. And then it was clear that they really needed people. So, uh, So I went. I was rubbish at the beginning, genuinely rubbish. I was really frozen, uh, looked very arrogant because I just didn't really know what to do. I was just terrified. But somehow when Richard and Carol, so Richard Whiteley and Carol Vorderman, they wanted to make a full-time team, I was there. So it was real serendipity for me. And, you know, I'm very grateful to Simon looking back that I wasn't too pleased at the time. But that wasn't, that wasn't where I was planning to go. When did you feel it clicked for you? I guess when I went full time. So I only went up to, it was in Leeds at the time, it's Yorkshire Telly. And I only went up uh, once or twice a year, you know, so there were lots of us sitting in the corner rotating. And then when I went full time, I think it really became part of the fabric of, of me. And I just quite happily, I think flew pretty much below the radar. And, and um, thanks, Jeff, for noticing me at that point. But it's only recently, I suppose, thanks to... Eight out of ten cats does countdown, which uh-huh. is the comedy version, which is yes. prime time and things that that has actually brought me to lots and lots of other different things. So you know, podcasting like you and writing and doing that kind of thing. So it's been a lovely um, shop window for me. 
What's your podcast? I do a podcast with um, Giles Brandreth uh, called Something Rhymes with Purple. We just witter and Giles name drops a lot, of course. And, um, and I just taught etymology. So that's essentially what we do. Let's end by asking you, give us a reason to be cheerful, which is our brand uh, about words, the world of words. Yeah, well, I think it is that point, Ed, that actually we are becoming increasingly aware of how language can dictate how we feel. And um, I wrote a book a few years ago, An Emotional Dictionary, and there's a lot of research there showing that people who have a high EQ, so emotional quotient, they go to the doctors less, they sleep better, they just generally are more positive because they're able to describe their um, their feelings and get a hold of them somehow. And the same goes for words of happiness. So what I'd love is for children to learn that there are actually positive counterparts to a lot of the negative things that we're using and then start sprinkling around these word drops of magic because they are out there. They just need to be dug up a little. And it is really important to say this, that we love, the, uh, we absolutely love the book, um, but the book is also aimed at younger readers, isn't it? It is aimed at children and, of course, parents and grandparents hopefully will enjoy it too. But I have to give a shout out to the illustrator because so much of the book is about the illustrations it's and that's beautiful. Harriet, Harriet Hobday. Yeah, she's really brought it to life. Well, look, Susie Dent, it is absolutely brilliant to have you on. Jeff was a fan before anyone else we've learned in this. <laughs> yeah, like one of those people who saw the band playing in. Uh, exactly. You saw the band in early work. Yeah. And, you, and now and you you've lo- gone mainstream. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I've just let you down. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, you, and you loved it even then. No, you're, you, you have many, many, many fans. Uh, Susie Dent, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Whoa, ho, ho. We're in the outro. Ho, ho. Time for the latest in an occasional series of one or the other of us, usually me, taking umbrage because a text message has gone unacknowledged. Go on. Now, the other week on the podcast, you mentioned being a fan of the sitcom Just Good Friends. Yes. I took the time to make you a lovely composite picture of Jam Francis and Paul Nicholas, stars of that show, as they look today. You didn't even reply. I was just confused, you know. What did you think I'd sent you? Gosh, is that them? Yes. I mean, I'm sure we all have, but they've aged somewhat. Well, this this is why I made you the picture. I thought, I thought it'll be interesting to see how I, li- I didn't recognise them, to be honest. So what did you think I'd sent you? Just some random picture. So so then you receive that picture, and, and what's the thought process that goes into not saying, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> There's a real lack of curiosity there. I just thought this really confusing. I, I almost wondered if it was meant for somebody else, I think. <laughs> I'm scrabbling around for sort of excuses now. Uh, actually, I replied, but it got stuck in my draft. Uh, right, yeah, yeah, that. that's always a good one. Yeah. Should we thank our guests? We should. I'd like to thank our guests, Gina Martin and Ben Hurst. The book, just to remind you, is No Offence, but How to Have Difficult Conversations for Meaningful Change. And I'd also like to thank Susie Dent and her brilliant book is Roots of Happiness, 100 Words for Joy and Hope. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our iDents. Ed Seed composed the music and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>